Would you take your Bible and turn, please, to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. We got to know a couple in Colorado who don't know the Lord but are gracious hosts, and they come from very different, interesting backgrounds. Actually, they have a daughter who is an F-16 fighter pilot. Nancy grew up in Hollywood, California. Her dad was a well-known Hollywood lawyer. She lived four houses away from Marilyn Monroe and went every day in a carpool driven by James Arness of Gunsmoke fame. But she was most interested in the glamorous Marilyn Monroe. And she and the other children had a little thing they would do. They would throw their toys over the fence into her backyard so she would have to give it back to them. And it seemed that she was getting tired of that. And finally, Nancy threw her dog over the fence and then went to the front door. So Marilyn would come out and talk to them and give the dog back. An interesting strategy for sure. But she said, I was always fascinated why so many black limousines from the government kept coming to Marilyn's house. Well, that's an unusual way to meet a celebrity. But here's our last whatever principle in this series of whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Whatever it takes to get people to Jesus, just do it. Whatever it takes to get people to Jesus, just do it. And as we come to this text, it is one of the most fascinating in the Bible. Would you stand as we honor the reading of God's inerrant word? Look on with someone else if you do not have a copy of the scriptures with you. Luke 5 17. It's about Jesus. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately. He got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment 
and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. You may be seated. The Pharisees were the guardians of the Judaism galaxy. Their name was Separated Ones. They were those who thought that they knew better than anyone else how to be holy with all their rules. And then the teachers of the law also had heard about Jesus, and this conglomeration of religious dudes all came together in Capernaum to Peter's house. They heard that Jesus was teaching there. Mark says he was teaching the Word to them in Mark 2. Verse 2, but so many people were gathering because it was not only that all these religious people were there in their special seats of honor, but people heard that Jesus was there, and they began to throng into the house, sitting in the windows, uh, in through the doors, uh, jamming in, just jam-packed, and then the streets were crowded. And in that press of humanity, you could hear the crackle of laughter. You could smell the mixture of sweat and fish. They were a fisherman village. People were just trying to get in, gesturing, excited to hear the rabbi of Nazareth. And what happened? As you know, four men also tried to get in. To Jesus, they were carrying a stretcher, it's also called a bed, and on this stretcher was a good friend of theirs who was a total paralytic, quadriplegic perhaps. He had such a debilitating situation. Nothing had ever worked. He had never been healed. He could not move his body, could not walk. And the interesting thing is, the word paralyzed in verse 18 means to be loosed on one side. The, the nerve system collapsed from his brain and his spinal cord. He was totally helpless. But they determined to get him to Jesus. And hopefully he might be healed. But they couldn't get through the wall of elbows and curses and indifference. But like Zacchaeus who found a way to see Jesus by climbing up on a tree. They saw the flat place on the roof that was used for prayer. A little stairway led up to it, and uh, also for cooling in hot parts of the day. And so they carried the stretcher up the stairs, onto the roof, and an amazing thing happened. They began to think, how can we get this guy to Jesus? And one man made a motion, somebody seconded, and the stretcher committee all voted on it. <laughs> Let's tear up the roof. Let's raise the roof and lower him down through the roof. And so they did. Now, it's interesting, the word tiles is used. We get our word ceramic from this. And then Mark talks about how they were digging up the roof. So it may have been a, a typical roof that had a mixture with uh, boards or timbers about two to three feet apart and a mixture of tiles and uh, dirt about a foot deep and branches and anything to block out the rain and the cold. And so they began digging up, as Mark describes it, 
the roof. And suddenly, dirt clods began to fall on the people below, <laughs> hitting the hats of the Pharisees, probably hitting Jesus as he was teaching. And he looked up, but not in anger. And as the light shone through that hole in the roof, suddenly saw, they saw an amazing sight they had never seen before, a man being lowered on a stretcher to the floor. And Jesus looked into the terrified face of that paralyzed man and gave him the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. Thanks to the four-man demolition crew. Whatever it takes in ministry, first of all, whatever it takes ministry implies confidence in Christ. And you notice the emphasis in chapter 5 there, verse 20, about their faith. We need an obvious faith. You know, Jesus uh, noticed their faith in verse 18. Faith bears obvious fruit. The Bible says in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus reminded them, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man who was struggling for his son to be healed said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then in verse 29, Jesus underscored the fact that the demon could not come out of this young man that was being prayed for except by prayer. Prayer is what releases our faith. Prayer is what builds our faith as we see God work in an amazing way. As we believe, we receive. Now, when we need obvious faith, obviously, uh, something was happening. There was a difference being made because of the faith of these four men. Jesus saw their faith. I don't know about the paralyzed guy. He had some degree of faith, or he wouldn't let them carry him up onto a roof and drop him down through a hole in the wall. He had faith in them, and he's growing in his faith in Jesus. But Jesus saw their faith. And there's something powerful when we are ministering to people and they have struggles with believing. But we believe. I don't understand. I mean, it's, a, it's a mystery to me in many ways. But we also need persistent faith. As you notice in verses 18 and 19, they would not take no for an answer unless it was God's no. Their motto was where there is a will, in God's will, there is a way. Difficulty doesn't mean a dead end. They had met nothing but trouble in trying to get him into Jesus. But faith persistently keeps on asking, keeps on seeking, and keeps on knocking. It believes that Jesus wants to do the extraordinary more than we could ever imagine. It believes, as Paul said, that God wants to do exceeding abundant above all we could ask or think. In Ephesians, he said. It believes that we will see more works of God when more roofs are raised. When we will press on and do what we must do. I love what Romans 12, 11 says. It's often overlooked, but 
Paul the Apostle talked about zeal, that we are not lagging behind in diligence. We're not lazy. We're not hesitating. We do what we should do. Fervent in spirit, he said. A word in the original that means a boiling up in white hot zeal for the Lord. Fervent in spirit, passion for Jesus and his work. But here's the key. Fervent, and it's not even found in most translations. And I looked it up in my Greek Bible. It is in the spirit. (laughs) Not just in your spirit, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who produces the fervor and the power. In the Holy Spirit, serving the Lord. How much of our service is lackadaisical? Ho-hum, Take it or leave it. Someone says, chill out and calm down, which eventually quenches our zeal. Someone said, a religious fanatic is someone who loves Jesus more than you do. Now, we're not called to be, uh, you know, zealous uh, jihad Christians, terrorists. We're already being called domestic terrorists because we believe in saving life defending our nation, doing what's right. But the fact is, we must be zealous and more fervent than those who are serving the devil. And we need sacrificial faith. You see that in verse 19. They were willing to dig up a roof. They were willing to pay the price of restoring that roof, even the possible offense of Jesus. Jesus might even reject them, and they would be publicly humiliated. But it was worth it to do whatever it took to see their friend healed. Vance Havner, the old Baptist prophet, said, We have to get out on a limb, because that's where the fruit is. And, I would add, where the faith is. The word will not return void. The Lord's power is present to heal when he's in the house. He's here right now. We are gathered together in his name. He is among us. And every single week we ought to be praying for a manifestation of the power of God to do whatever he wants to do in this place. I believe God wants to do far more than we've ever seen. But the supernatural is so unnatural that it's become natural for us not to expect the supernatural. He cannot do many mighty mighty things in our Nazareth because of our unbelief. But secondly, whatever it takes ministry instills creativity of methods. This was really creative, verses 18 and 19. Now, creativity is flesh on display unless it comes from the Creator. It's just Disney theology, dream it and do it, and you live in a fantasy land. Do what doesn't require creativity, though. You say, wait a minute, that sounds contradictory. No, there are some things that are just easy and natural to do. And the Lord reminded me of this yesterday. Did you know, and I checked this out with two uh, Baptist authorities on evangelism, 
from the North American Mission Board. Listen to this. 80 to 85% of all Baptists who are born again were saved after being invited to a church. After being invited to a church. I wonder how many of you here were saved going to a Billy Graham crusade. Can I see your hand? Not a church, but a crusade. Two, three, four. Four? How many of you were somehow invited or taken to a church, and as a result of that, you became a Christian? Could I see your hands? Oh, all over the room, right? The easiest thing to do. It requires no apologetics, no Bible student knowledge, no creativity to invite someone to come to your church. And the, the percentage, I'm still looking for this one, there is one out there that says uh, if you invite them, they usually will come. Most people have never cared enough to invite their friends to come to church. And of course, that means you need to bring them to something worth listening to. And I believe that's true here. They're a place where there's family. A caring Christian can overcome a multitude of sins of the hypocrisy of a few leaders that have turned off other people throughout Christendom today. I believe that creativity, though, is from God. We need to think outside the box in this whatever ministry. That's why Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some. Now, Paul was not a compromising chameleon who changed his message every time he was with someone different to not offend the seekers. And to please men. No, the message never changes, but the methods might. Paul was willing, as a fisher of men, to use different bait and lures with different kinds of fish. And he was willing to be, to be a man of tact so he could have contacts with unbelievers. And so must we. We're called to be fishers of men. The problem is, though, that we don't understand all means to reach some, all kinds of approaches, all kinds of ministries, by all means to do whatever God is calling us to do. We build bridges and not walls, and it's so exciting to see how God can use you, and you could be thinking creatively, and you say, God, show me something I've never thought of before to reach this person. Show me how to pray for them in something I've never asked for before, because it's worth it to get them to Jesus. The stretcher bearers were stretched. They were stretched not knowing what they should do, but they discovered God's unique plan. They didn't say, did anybody bring a rope? <laughs> hey, I need to, wait just a minute, I need to Google how to raise a roof here. I know there's something on the internet. 
One guy did not say, hey, I've never dug up a roof before. I wonder if Peter will call uh, his fisher's insurance for his homeowner's policy. No, they did whatever they needed to do. And see, that's where we go. We get into growth spurts. Every growth spurt has a growth pain. There's always something challenging about the new and the different. A new church, a new building, a new approach. And we have to stop trying to defend old positions and traditions, but make new discoveries of what God is up to. I learned a long time ago pastoring some large, very traditional churches in the Deep South. Listen, you can ride a dead horse or you can try to tame a bucking bronco. Nags drag us. And I'd rather have that bronco and I'd rather make a few mistakes and see God do something with life and zeal. And so you think outside the box, but use what you have. Turn with me, if you can, to Luke 7. Luke 7, what a great story this is. A woman has been saved who was a streetwalker. In the oldest profession of the world, they would have called it. She was immoral. They called her a sinner. And in Luke 7, 37 and 38, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing him with the perfume. And Jesus went on to say in verse 47, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. They've already been forgiven. And out of love for Jesus, this former prostitute is using the tools of her trade earlier to show service and love for Jesus. Her kisses that enticed men, her perfume that brought a sensual, essential oil factor into play, her long, beautiful hair, her tears that touched a man's emotions like Samson, which Delilah did to seduce him. She took all of that, gave it to the Lord, and used it to serve Jesus. Isn't it wonderful to see a prisoner who has come out of prison and be born again like Chuck Colson that we mentioned, begin prison fellowship. For someone who was a, a businessman like Matthew who uses his former shady business deals to invite all those big bad mafia type people to a house to meet Jesus. It was Matthew who got all these rough people into the house to hear the Word of God because of his contacts in his previous life. Think outside the box. Use what you have. I learned this as a teenager and saw God really use it. I was reminded, I had a, a phone call a few months ago 
from a young man that I had met in high school named Steve Hayes. Not the guy at First Baptist, another Steve Hayes. And he had sent a link to me of the sermon he had preached in Phoenix telling the story about what I did with him. When God really began working in my heart and I was called to the ministry, in my senior year of high school, I, I, I was so committed to try to reach my campus of 3,000 students that I dropped out of, I stopped all sports that I was involved in. I began prayer groups, huddle groups. I began working with other, the, the few Christians I knew in my school. And I developed an Emmaus ministry, I called it. We had no bus routes there, so we would walk with someone going home and share the gospel with them like Jesus did in a, with the disciples going to Emmaus. And we'd say, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to 32nd Street in Osborne. Oh, hey, me too. Let me walk with you. And then when I got my dad's old 58 Chevy Bel Air, I found that was even effective. Also, I could drive and pick up kids. Those were the old days. Hitchhikers. And so I saw Steve Hayes walking one day, very forlorn. He just lost a, a critical wrestling match. And I gave him a ride in my Chevy. Now, I'd not been to seminary. I didn't have any training in this, but I knew God wanted me to witness to him. And so I started driving faster and faster. And then I looked, I took my hand off the wheel and looked at him and I said, Steve, if you were to die in the next few seconds, would you go to heaven? <laughs> he was terrified. I, I mean, who is this religious fanatic? He said, let me out of the car. I, I, stop, pull over right now. Stop. Well, you better settle it. You better, you better know that you know that you have eternal life. So I let him out of the car. And I did not know what God did next. I knew the Lord used it somehow, but he was so convicted that he was lost that in a short period of time, because of that question, that experience, he gave his heart to Christ, went to seminary, became a foreign missionary with the International Mission Board, and then later pastored the church that I was a member of as a kid. And he shared this story. Whatever it takes, I don't recommend my, my strategy, <laughs> but God will show you and then third, whatever it takes, ministry ignites compassion for the needy. We live because of mercy from Jesus. Jesus saw the sheep without a shepherd harassed and helpless, the Bible says in Matthew 9, 36. Dispirited and distressed, one translation says. And he felt compassion for them. That's the word that means bowels of mercy in the deepest part of his being, as when Jesus was moved and deeply troubled over the death of Lazarus, whom he loved greatly. Jesus showed compassion. And so this young man who has been paralyzed and, and wondering what in the world is going to take place, heard Jesus look into his face and say, 
friend. Verse 20. Mark says, son, little child. I believe he said both. And the gospel writers record different aspects of this. Son, friend. Jesus looks at us and he said, take courage, according to another translation. Take courage. My child, I love you. Because he sees people of value. He sees that a, that a paralyzed person become, can become spiritually powerful. A child can become a mature Christian. Someone who is an enemy can become a friend. Someone who is in jail with addictions can be set free. An alien can become a citizen of heaven because Jesus has compassion for us. He came and identified with us as a man. In the 1930s, it was very dangerous to be Jewish in Europe. And as Hitler was sweeping across Western Europe, he came to Denmark, conquered Denmark, and he forced King Christian X to mount the balcony of the Emolienberg Palace and call his nation to have all Jews wear yellow armbands. He knew this would be a mark for future persecution. But the amazing thing happened. The king stood on that balcony with tears coming down his eyes. He was wearing a yellow armband himself. And many Danes harbored Jews, protected them, got them out of the country to Sweden, watched over their homes of their neighbors until they could somehow return. They followed his example. And Jesus came. He put on not only an armband, he took on flesh the form of a bondservant, Philippians says. He was humbled in the likeness of a man and died on a cross and showed compassion. And that's how he could say, I forgive you. It has such a way of humbling us, doesn't it? This mercy. When Paul was a relatively young Christian, for about 14 years, actually, he visited the uh, apostles in Jerusalem. And uh, he said they are reputed to be pillars of the church of high reputation, but they contributed nothing to me. Now, that's a little arrogant, wouldn't you say? Peter and James, and John, not James, but Peter and John and the others, Galatians 2.6. And then, as the sandpaper of God was working on his pride, about six years later, we read in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Five years later, he would write to the Ephesians and say, I am the very least of all the saints. Boy, God's humility had been working, Ephesians 3.8. And about five more years pass, and he says to young Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. Not was, I am. I still, he said, struggle with sin, but God has shown me mercy. In 1 Timothy 1.15, 
The more proud we are, the farther we are away from God. We have His mercy, though, and His patience. But we demonstrate unity because of Jesus' mercy. It's important. It took those four men to work together to carry Him up to the roof and then to lower Him down evenly so He doesn't drop and be further hurt. God is calling us to come together. When you think about how the world split up at Babel, the Tower of Babel, then at Pentecost, you see the reversal of Babel. And they speak different tongues, but to the glory of God, by the power of God, and then one language of salvation and message of of truth. We're we're God's dream team, a, a people of differences and diversity and gifts and talents and ministries. But God uses every one of us. He says, all hands on deck. And this church needs a unifying of the teamwork of all of you. You say, but Hayes, I'm only here part of the year. You know that much of Paul's ministry was in a very short time, a few days here, a few weeks here, a few months. Contribute while you can as God calls. They need greeters, prayer warriors, nursery workers, children, singers, musicians. God can use all of you in some way, even driving a 58 Chevy. And then fourth, whatever it takes, ministry invites Christ into our need. We encounter His power His omnipotence, the power of the Lord was present to heal. Jesus never met a disease he couldn't heal. A dead man he couldn't raise. A demon he couldn't cast out. A sin he couldn't forgive. A situation he couldn't change. He is the great I am. And 22 times in John, Jesus said, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of Man. And when they came to arrest him, what did he do? They said, Whom do you he said, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said simply, I am He. And they fell over backwards overwhelmed by a brief unveiling of His deity and power as the Son of Man and Son of God. He has the power to do whatever God is calling. He is omniscient as well. Jesus knew the reasonings of these wicked people. He knew their hearts, according to verse 22. Their reason was Aristotelian. Their logic was, only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, He forgives sins, therefore, He's not God. But their reason should have been, only God can forgive sins. Jesus has just forgiven this man of his sins, therefore, Jesus is God. But reason is wrong when it's unsaved. That Jesus knows your thoughts. That's called omniscience. What if he put your thoughts on the screen this morning? And one of them comes up. I hope no one knows 
that I'm texting instead of reading a digital Bible? When's the preacher going to talk to the what not to wear committee? I'm hungry. Let's get this over with. You know, he knows your thoughts, and he still loves you and forgives you. And then we enjoy his pardon. He said, rise and walk. That was obvious. Jesus began with the simple thing, the most easily uh, verified thing, rise and walk. And then he added, and and your sins are forgiven. He will forgive whatever sin we commit. I don't forgive. I do not absolve you of your sins. Are you with me? No man has the power, the authority from God, but we announce in the gospel what he has already done, the cross. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The Son of Man became our Savior. And the verb tense that is used all throughout the Gospels, whenever he would say, your sins are forgiven, is the perfect tense, meaning I have already forgiven them. Forgiveness continues to be in place and will be from now on. Your sins have been forgiven. And he has the power that none of us could imagine. Many of you may have read Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. He has on his tombstone already these words in the Holy Root Cemetery in Long Island. He finally stopped talking. Well, he needs to stop writing about things he doesn't understand. Because in an interview which I read, O'Reilly is not using biblical interpretation, but his bloviating. You know what I'm talking about? And he says that on the cross, Jesus really didn't say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's his explanation. By the way, he wouldn't call him the Son of God or Messiah either. Quote, we don't put in things that we don't think happened. You couldn't say something like that audibly that people would hear. Hey, you, you, if you're dying on a cross, you're being suffocated and can't breathe. So he leaves out. He puts in a couple of things Jesus said on the cross that reveal his humanity, but he will not declare his deity. But he was no ordinary man. He died as our substitute and therefore was raised from the dead. And then lastly, we express praise to him. Glory to his name. They were astonished. That means they were struck with a thunderbolt of truth. We've never seen anything like this. Filled with the fear of the Lord, reverence for the awesomeness of God. And he went home glorifying God. Let's go home. Let's go out giving glory to God. Not to the four men who carried the man. Not to the man, but the Lord. Whatever Jesus says to you, whatever he's doing in this church, let's join him and do it. Would you bow your heads as we prepare for the Lord's Supper?
I want to read a simple text. As Paul the Apostle said, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But he says, we must examine ourselves of sin that is unconfessed and not take of the table unworthily. Right now, would you simply ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's anything you're harboring in your heart? Let's take it to the cross. Let's find the mercy and forgiveness of the Lord right here, right now. Let's repent before we remember his death. Thank you, Lord, for your great mercy and forgiveness. We praise you and glorify your wonderful name. Help us now as we celebrate what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If there's anyone here who does not have the receptacle of the two elements, the bread and the juice, would you raise your hand and one of our good people will bring it to you. Anyone who needs one. Now, you received these when you came in, but there, there have been times in my life when I knew I wasn't right with God and it, it was going to take a while to get right with God and I didn't take of the elements of the table. We wouldn't let our children do it until they were born again. And so you just hold it there. If, you're, if God's peace isn't dwelling in your heart about this, don't incur chastening of the Lord. But if you've been saved and biblically baptized, then you are ready in the most basics of things to take of the table. I'd like for you to take the top off, excuse me, rather, the, the bread in the book, in the in the bottom and close your eyes once again and thank Jesus that he gave his body broken for you thank him he did that because he loved you so much put it in your mouth thanking him all the while in remembrance of the cross. Thank you, Lord. And then would you tear off the top that has the juice? And as we remember his blood shed for us, it's the blood of Jesus 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The song says. In like manner with the bread, would you drink it in remembrance of him? And as often as we drink it and eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you glorify God right now for his cross? Praise the Lord.